This morning we confront one of the most dangerous, difficult, and tricky passages in the whole of the Bible. So what I would like to do is just skip over it, you see. In the lectionary tradition, one doesn't have that option, and in in this case, I've been assigned it as part of our series. But I want to make sure to press into this as we begin so that we're all clear about how difficult this passage actually is. This is a man who's lived on the planet for 10 decades, and he finally gets a son. This is a very significant son, and the story begins with God coming to him and saying, you need to sacrifice your son. What in the world does that mean? And not only does he say, sacrifice your son, but if you look at the text, and it's actually up there on the screen, it says, let's go down to the third line, offer him there as a burnt offering. You see where I am? Not only is he to sacrifice his son, but he's to offer him as a burnt offering. So clearly this is terrific. We have a bloodthirsty God who's interested in child sacrifice. This is not not easy. This is not comfortable. And yet, and yet, this is considered in Judaism and Christianity one of the most sacred and important stories that there is. This is the passage that is appointed as the Old Testament lesson as a choice for Good Friday. This is the passage which is read at the Easter Vigil. It is a terribly significant story, and we have no choice. The only way out is through. Not around it, not underneath it, but through it. So you're going to need to look at your text if you'd be kind enough to get it out, or you can refer to it on the screen. And what I want to do is I want to walk through the story in some detail. I want to make some observations about it, and then I want to ask some questions. So first of all, if I can, in some detail, I want to walk through the story. I'm going to break it down into three sections, the command, the journey, and the mountaintop. So I'm going to start with the command, which is verses 1 and 2. And it begins this way, and after these things. Everybody see where I am? The very first phrase. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to ask what it's there for. When you see a phrase like after these things, you have to pause and say after what things. You're joining a narrative which has already started. You've got to remind yourself of where you are in the story. We started in Genesis 12. Abram was 75 and God came and said, go. Go where? He wasn't told. For how long? He wasn't told. What was the weather like? He wasn't told. He wasn't told any of these things. Did you catch the reference in Hebrews? In our reading this morning it says, He went out not knowing where he was to go. And we are now... 25 plus years later, when his son is born, he's 100. And in this story, if you look at the text, it says that word son in Hebrew uh, could be translated young man. Uh, Josephus, one of the Jewish scholars, thinks he's 25, Isaac, in this story. For our purposes, I'm going to argue he's 13. But that means that we're roughly something like Abraham at 113 years old. And in between the call and this story, there are lots of things that happen. There's the separation with Lot, there's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and oh yes, there's that section where, I wonder if we can relate to this this morning, Abraham sees God's promise, he hears God's promise, and God says, you're going to be uh, the father of many nations, and through you, your heir and your heir's heirs, all the families of the world will be blessed. And uh, last time Abraham checked, there's no son. It's kind of hard to have heirs if there's no son. So Abraham decides, I wonder if we can relate to this, to manage God's will for him. To kind of help God along the way, because God doesn't seem to be doing very well. I mean, how is he going to have 
a heritage and heirs if he doesn't have a son. It's kind of a basic principle. So he has sexual relationship with his maid, and they have a son, Ishmael, and God will have none of that. And he's given up entirely on the prospect of having a son by the time his son happens. He's 100, Sarah's 90, and they both laugh. In fact, Isaac's name means God laughs. Now you've got to put yourself in the position of being a parent. Why do parents love their children? Think about it. It's not an answerable question, ultimately. It's a mystery. The short answer is because they do. You actually can't, you actually can't help it. You can't not do it if you're a parent. It just happens. And if you have more than one, the love doesn't go down. It goes up. And you can't explain that either. You love them because they're yours and they're there and they've come and something happens to you and you're never the same again. There's a line in the culture between people who have children and people who don't have children. And people who don't have children and who want to have children are in a terrible situation. Maybe you know some. We have friends of ours who had tons of trouble for years and years having a child. What does it feel like when they finally have a child if they've worked so hard, sometimes with extra reproductive technology help to get one? It is the most precious thing in the world. And this is who we're talking about in this situation. Ten decades this son hasn't been around, and now for the purposes of our story, let's just say 13 years he's been in the house. How close do you think the relationship is between Abraham and Sarah and Isaac? It's incredibly close. It's all through the story. Did you catch all the use of the personal pronouns? And he's tested, it says. Look at that word as we begin. After these things, God tested. In most contexts... This word has the idea of testing or proving the quality of someone or something, often through adversity or hardship. If you want an image, you should think of the smelting industry. My wife is a Pittsburgh native, and back in the day, before it was what it is now, uh, it's gone from all steel to green technology. It's a very different place than it was. But, but, But if you go to a steel mill and you watch them, Uh, do the steel at these super high temperatures they actually heat up the steel and then they take a thing and they and they remove the impurities from the surface which you can only do if you've heated it to this super maximum temperature that's the idea of this word you you only find out somebody's character when it's really really difficult in life that's when their true character is really revealed more than one person has said you find the mice in the basement when you turn the light on all of a sudden, they were there the whole time. But if you go down and you give them warning and you make noise and then you turn the light on, they don't come. You've got to turn it on all of a sudden. Adversity is like that. And that's what this word test means. And he's told to offer him as a burnt offering. Now put yourself in his place and think about what's going through his mind and then say this. You've got to go for a three days journey and you've got to go up a mountain and you've got to offer your son as a sacrifice. And then turn to verses 3 to 8 and think about the story for a second. Robert Alter, the great scholar in his book, The The Art of Biblical Narrative, uses a wonderful phrase. He says, the the art of narrative in the Bible is a laconic style, L-A-C-O-N-I-C, by which he means what? He means this. He means every word is carefully chosen. No words are wasted. Every action and description that is deemed unnecessary is left out. And that means that every word is included for a reason. And if you look at the text and you think about this story, if I were to act it out in an American movie or in a play, you would be quickly bothered because there are not very many lines. There are lots of characters and there's a good bit of action, but there's actually not very many lines. 
So for a three-day journey, there's a lot of silence in the story, but not many lines. Why? Because the narrator is desperate for us to understand that there are rivers, indeed oceans of current underneath the surface of this story going on. And we can't understand it unless we get at some of these currents. So as you look at the story and think about that three-day journey, consider this. Consider the huge emphasis on the intimacy of their relationship. When God calls Abraham, he says, here I am, Hineni in Hebrew at the beginning of the story. When, if you look at your text, they start on this journey and his son says, my father, he says, here I am. That's the same phrase. The same intimate phrase that Abraham uses in response to God with whom he's now been walking for some three decades since the call is the same phrase that he uses with his son. The word my is repeated again and again in the story. My father, my son. Both of them walk together. Look at verse 6 at the end and look at verse 8 at the end. Do you see where I am? Both of them went together. So they went both of them together in this translation. The emphasis is on the togetherness. The emphasis is on the intimacy. The emphasis is on the deep and abiding love and affection that they have for one another. This is, this is what you call in, in uh, family lore creating a memory, right? If you have a good vacation, what happens? You create a memory, right? Bad vacations, you get rid of that. But if, if it's a success, you create it. This is one of those, this is a story you're never going to forget. This is a father and son journey for three days that you're never going to forget. And don't miss the detail. In addition to all that, that on the third day, and only on the third day, because he takes two assistants with him the first two days, at the third day, it's only the father and the son, and it's only then that they go up the mountain. And then it all happens, the climactic moment. He lays his son on the altar. He ties him down. He lifts up the knife. And you get that incredible phrase, Abraham, Abraham. In the uh, bishop's, I don't know what to call it, faldy roll, but the, the bishops walk about. One of the, uh, the one that I saw at St. Philip's, one of the ministers was speaking about uh, how you keep people in church. And he read a study that had a huge impact on him. And, and, he, and the study said that the single most important factor for keeping people in church was a pastor that remembered their name. It stunned him. Nothing else was more important than that. Not the preaching, not the worship. The fact that they remembered their name. Well, this is not, hey, what's your name? Hey, what's your name? This is Abraham. God knows him by his first name. But it's not once, brothers and sisters, it's twice. Now, we need to pause and let this hit us with the full force that it's intended in the narrative. In Hebrew, they don't do it like English. We have E-R and E-S-T to make words stronger, right? So high, higher, highest, right? In Hebrew, they don't do that. Hebrew is a very agrarian, earthy language, right? So I'm studying Hebrew in the early 1980s, and we're looking at Genesis, and I'm reading along, and it's, and I've never seen this before because I've never studied Hebrew, and it says, and he fell into the pit pits. And I said to my professor, what does that mean, pit pits? And he said, the pit pits are the piteous pits. That's straight Hebrew. You don't want to fall into the pits, but you especially don't want to fall into the pit pits. This is the way that Hebrews think. That's the way that they emphasize. It almost never happens in the Bible that somebody's name is used twice. It's a hugely important thing. Think for a second. You know some examples. The burning bush. Here comes the voice. Moses, Moses. There it is. In the book of Acts, the, the, the number one 
opponent of the church who's described as a, a fire-breathing dragon. He's described as a, as a lion scavenging uh, corpses. Saul, he's in the middle of noonday prayer on the Damascus Road. And who knew he's in worship and God actually showed up? Can you believe it? That's the thing about worship. You can actually worship and God can show up. And, and God is there. And he sees him with, to use his own language, the eyes of his heart. And God says, Saul, Saul. Not just Saul, Saul, Saul. That's epically important. There's another example. In the Gospels, toward the end, the most important apostle, the chief among the apostles. Simon, Simon, Jesus says, with the cross looming right in the background. Satan sought to sift you like wheat. And there's that other one, don't miss it, from the cross. Psalm 22, verse 1, from our Lord. Not my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Profound emphasis. It is a wake-up moment. It is a pay-attention moment. It is a God is here, and this is significant moment. Moses, Moses, Saul, Saul, Simon, Simon, Abraham, Abraham. Pay attention. And then the, the angel says, I know the depth of your love. You've, you've passed the test and there's a further promise and our story's done. So the, the story goes, command, journey, mountaintop. Now what are we going to make of it? Well, let me make three observations for you to think about. First of all, it is a story about the sacrifice of love. If it's about anything, it's about love. I I told my wife I was messing around this week with Luther's commentary on this passage. It was was so profound, so deep, and so rich. I felt like all I needed to do this morning was stand up, read Luther, and sit down. That's how how good it is. It's, It's unbelievable the kind of language that he's able to to muster to describe what what goes on. Listen to Luther on verse 10 on exactly this theme. Moses sums up the remarkable and amazing account in one short sentence. At this very moment, listen, the father is about to cut the throat of his son. The son with his eyes lifted up to heaven presents his throat and waits to be reduced to ashes. Thus God brings both into extreme danger of their lives. If on that occasion there had been no faith, or if God had slept for a single moment, the life of the son would have been done for. Because the knife is ready, the son is bound and placed on a heap of wood, and the thrust is aimed at his throat. These are works of God by which he shows that he takes care of us, listen, even in the greatest dangers and in the midst of death. And what you've got to realize is the whole three-day journey that he's on, he's trying to find a way that God's not going to make him do this. And it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and he's got to do it. And you've got to put yourself in his situation and say, what does it mean to give up a child? I mean, we couldn't even handle it when we finally ended up as an empty nest family. And our children were gone from the house. We're way past that. What does it mean to voluntarily give up a child? Not just to military service, but to death. What is the love that's involved? Spurgeon puts it this way. Listen, the knife was cutting into his own heart all the while, yet he took it. 
Unbelief would have left the knife at home, but his genuine faith and love takes it. So first of all, it's a sacrifice of love. It's a sacrifice of the most precious thing in the world to him. And he passes the test, but don't underestimate how difficult it was just to do that. There's more. It's not just the sacrifice of love. It's the sacrifice of logic. Now, I have to be careful here. Because I'm about to say very clearly that Abraham's logic was crucified. And someone's going to walk out of here and say, you know, we got this new guy on staff. He's a bit weird. And you know, he, went, he, he went to Oxford and stuff and all this stuff. But, but he, he said that you need to crucify your logic, which somehow suggests that I don't care about thinking or is in danger of suggesting that. So let's be clear. My resume should already make this clear, but just so that we're all on the same page, we are to love God with our minds. I care supremely about logic. I'm not talking about logic in general. I'm talking about your thinking specifically about how God's will is unfolding in your life. And I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about the fact that as good as your intellect is, as important it is to love God with your mind, you get in situations where trying to understand exactly what God's doing makes it worse. (laughs) Life is not so much a problem to be solved as a mystery to be lived. We spend the rest of the morning on this. You've got to understand that in the first point, Abraham's heart is crucified, but in the second point, his mind is crucified. Now stay with me and think. I already told you that he tried to manage God's will for him and he had sexual relationships with Hagar and he had a son, Ishmael. So when this son finally showed up and they laughed, he was 100 and Abraham and Sarah, sorry, was 90. And let's just say for our purposes, he's 13 years old. We're back to the issue of promise again. You've got to think theologically. You've got to think about the promise of God. Your progeny are going to be around the whole earth. Your heirs and their heirs. Through them, all the families of the world will be blessed. So he's never had a son. He finally gets his most precious son. And so now he has something, which is the means by which God's promise is fulfilled. And God is saying... I'm giving you the promise and I'm taking away the only means in history by which the promise can be accomplished. How exactly does that work? It's devastating. Here's Luther again. Puts it very, very succinctly. I have stated what Abraham's trial was, namely the contradiction of the promise. Therefore, his faith shines forth with special clarity in this passage. Inasmuch as he obeys God with a ready heart when he gives him the command. Although Isaac has to be sacrificed, listen, he nevertheless has no doubt whatever that the promise will be fulfilled, even if he does not know the manner of its fulfillment. Yet he is also alarmed and terrified. For what else could the father do? Nevertheless, he clings to the promise that at some time Isaac will have descendants. There's a little throwaway detail in the New Testament lesson from Hebrews. Did you catch it? It's important. We're way back in early Judaism. There's very little sense of the afterlife. And the writer to the Hebrews says that Abraham has gone through all the mental and spiritual gymnastics. Incredible three-day work this is to reach the point where he might be necessary to kill his own son. And yet, nevertheless, God is somehow going to resurrect his son back. Because he's not going to not fulfill his promise. He actually somehow does all the work to get to that. It makes no sense. 
So I'm sitting there in the car, back a while, listening to a teaching on uh, the life of Elijah. And the preacher is talking about the scene in Zarephath, and he's gone over there, and he's gotten food, and he's gotten water. And then it says, and the brook dried up. And I'm listening to this sermon in the car on just one particular day, and this minister, very, very good preacher, he says, and I quote, listen carefully, he says, the older I get the more I have come to believe that God's ways are apparently irrational. Right? Because he just took him to a place where he provided for him, and then the brook dried up. He's he's, he's in the middle of nowhere with no provision. And so what? He has no clue. It makes no sense. Zero. And I turned off the tape, and I just rolled down the road in silence. Sometimes things happen in your life which are mysterious and strange and unanticipated. Beware, brothers and sisters, of your mind's desire to try to figure God out entirely. In the minute something happens, it can work to your great disadvantage. Life is a mystery. Maybe the understanding will come later. But be careful, because reason itself can cripple true discipleship. Abraham went through the crucible of the cross of reason. Will we? First, sacrifice of love. Second, sacrifice of logic. Third, the sacrifice of the lamb. The unforgettable line in the story. Abraham says, God will provide himself the sacrifice. And when he lifts up his hand and the angel says the words two times, then he turns around and there's a ram in the thicket and he sacrifices the ram. And every single Christian commentator who comments on this passage, they all see it as a pointing to Good Friday. They all see it as the great contrast in the story. Because here's the thing, brothers and sisters, this is a story about an awesome sacrifice which wasn't ultimately required. He would have gone through with it, but he didn't have to. But what everybody's clear about is, when you look at the crucifixion and you look at Good Friday, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did what was required voluntarily, not away from the sacrifice, but through the sacrifice, and they did it willingly. Paul says it beautifully in Romans chapter 8. If you're taking notes, I want you to take this verse down. Romans 8, verse 32. Listen. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's Eugene Peterson in the message on the same verse. If God did not hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing us to the, himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? Boom. It is a story of the sacrifice of love. It is a story of the sacrifice of logic. And it is a story of the sacrifice of a lamb. Now, some questions and I'm done. The question is this. Where does this passage hit us where we live and move and have our being? In the middle of COVID in South Carolina, in the uh, early part of the 20s, in the 21st century. Some lessons for you to consider. First of all, don't miss this. The deepest struggles of faith come from the things within, the things that are the greatest blessing to us. You can't miss the implications of this in this story. 
Isaac is incredible blessing. Incredible blessings are incredibly important, but they're blessings, they're gifts. It's not my life, they're not my children, it's not my wife, they're gifts. I don't even have myself. They're all gifts. And one of the things about life that you got to realize is, it's the really good stuff that can turn into the worst idols. Yes, sex, money, and power make all the books. But things like um, ambition and jobs and kids and spouses, and we could go on all more. These are the things, these really good things that can be really powerful things and gifts can be turned into idols. They can become ultimate things. And anything that threatens God can turn into an idol, which is why Jesus says, do you remember this? He says, it seems unfair almost in Luke 14. He says, if anyone does not hate father or mother, and then it says, you would think it would say, he wouldn't be a very good disciple or he'd be a kind of okay disciple. It says he he cannot be my disciple. Which means what? It means Jesus is a lousy teacher and he's mean. No, it can't mean that. It means that Jesus is a rabbi and the rabbis teach through a a technique called caricature where you exaggerate the significance of something in order to press the point home. So it means this. It means your love for God should be so awesome and so great that your relationship with that which is most precious to you like your spouse and your children and your parents is as if it were hate in comparison. That's the idea. They're idols. Someone has said the human heart is an idol factory. That'll preach. That'll preach. Beware the idols growing in your life. They're not your children. It's not your job. It's not your life. This isn't your church. This isn't your country. They're all gifts. And they're great things. But it's the really good things that can be threatening to the ultimately really good thing, which is faith in God. You all with me so far? Second, reason has to be crucified in order to live the Christian life. You have to reach the point where if life is a mystery that is to be lived and not a problem to be solved, you're going to get in situations where it's not going to make sense and it's okay. But that's easier said than done. Have you noticed? So my wife and I, uh, we leave the country in 1990. We go to England where they speak a separate language, sorry. <laughs> Which is another story for another time. But, but we left everything that was familiar. And we took a rainy bus ride from the airport to Oxford. And the place where we were staying wasn't what we thought. So we cried on the bus. And we got to the place where we were to stay. And we cried in the place where we were to stay. And we were staying in a common area with lots of other people of international students. And we had a common phone. And we'd been there just about seven to ten days. And the phone rang for me. And somebody came to my door because you didn't have your own phone. And they knocked on the door and they said the phone was for you. So I went and got the phone. And it was a doctor's office. And the people said, "Uh, your wife has had a bike accident in the middle of an intersection in Oxford. You need to come uh, here right, to get her. Uh, she's okay, but you need to come. And I'm sitting there thinking, uh, this, this is not, this, this, what in the, I, what? It didn't make any sense. That is what you call an inauspicious start. If I saw it, sat there and tried to figure out all the reasons why it happened that way, with that time, that early, I would never be where I am today. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, it was not easy. I was not happy. 
It's much easier to talk about than it is to live, but it's so important. We live looking out the back of a car and we can see just to the side, but we can't see forward. We can see what was and we can see what is, but we can't see the future. We walk by faith, not by sight. And God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And if you think about that image, it's saying something very profound. You only, if you're good and God is gracious, get enough light for the next step. It doesn't say you get the light up by your head to see the whole way. You've got to learn to trust. And it's not easy. You with me? Three. This is about the sacrifice of the Father and the Son and the cross. You can't read this story and not talk about the love of God, which is inexpressibly deep. You can't talk about the love of Abraham as profound as it, w- as it was and as it is and not talk about the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul's phrase is the unsearchable riches of Christ. The hymnal puts it this way. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. And you've got to understand that Jesus went under the wrath of God and under the knife. We can use that phrase, especially this morning in light of this passage for you and for me. And you've got to stop this morning and think about what that really means. Here's one story from one of my favorite preachers, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was the minister at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. It's a story about the 19th century in the American Midwest when we had wood-burning locomotives and wheat fields. And you may not know this, but when the locomotives went, they sent out sparks in both directions. And when the trains came across wheat fields, there was a 10 to 15 day period every single year, listen, when the wheat was ripe enough to burn, but not yet ripe enough to cut. You got the image? We're in Kansas or Arkansas. There's a train coming through. You're on a farm. And you just got the... But the thing is, as a farmer in the 19th century, you don't have pesticides. <laughs> you, you, you can't call a major company to get the agro company to get them to help you. You're all on your own. You have this tremendous feeling of vulnerability. Wheat fields sometimes built burn for 10 miles on these fires that the trains made. And on one day, I bet you know where it's going. A, farther, a farmer's sitting there and he's looking off and all of a sudden he sees dreaded sight. He's in that vulnerable period, billowing smoke in the distance. He knew the wind was coming not away but toward toward him and that the wheat would burn right down to the edge of his barn and that he might lose the house, that he might lose the barn and all his buildings. So he took a torch and he ran to the edge of his own field. He lighted a fire and the fire in his own wheat began to burn 100 yards, 200 yards. It made a giant circle so that when the real fire from the train came down and met the place that was burned over, it passed around and it went on and the backfire saved his buildings. But, but, but. He lost the crop. And now we're in the aftermath. You're the farmer. You're looking at this big charred circle of all your work for the last year and all that it means to you and your family. And he's feeling sad and he's feeling great grief and he's walking out amidst the burnt stubble as Greyhouse tells the story. And he sees as he's walking the charred body of a hen just lying there. And he looks and he thinks, well, she probably got confused and so she ran back into the fire and got burned to death. What a shame. And as Barnhouse tells the story, he's just walking and he just, he just kicks the hen with his toe and outrun a dozen little baby chicks. Barnhouse says this, the mother's body had been over them. She was burned, but they went out free. 
In the day of Christ dying, there was the dam of God's patience. There was the flood of God's wrath. It was the day that Jesus Christ was put on a cross. God said that Christ was guilty of all the law, having become a curse and being crucified. But on the third day, God raised him for the dead. And I ran out free, says Barnhouse, and you ran out free. For he was between us and the wrath of God. He took the knife voluntarily. He did it for you and he did it for me. We say God loves you. We mean it in this parish. But we mean it because we base it ultimately from the cross out. Not from our lives and the world in. But from the cross out. Last point, then I'm done. In a way, this is the most important point, And I don't know if you caught it. There's a name in this passage. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. It's after it's all done. It's just a little throwaway line. But if there's ever, brothers and sisters, if there's ever a story in the Bible where we know for sure that God will provide, it's this one. At any point in this story, if you had an NBC Jerusalem camera and a microphone, you stick it in front of Abraham and say, how do you think God's doing your life? He would not be happy. And he would not think it would have a good ending. No way. But, but it did. Which means what? It means this. It means this is critical. God will make a way when there doesn't seem to be a way. You remember those pitiful people who took the bus and the rain in Oxford? You know, the, the one with the bike accident and all. Well, God bless them. Stephen Francis Garden, he was the rector at one time of St. Paul's in Somerville, retired. They came over just a couple weeks after that. We were playing cards one night. And Francis Garden looked over at us. And th- this may not seem like a lot to you, but let me tell you, for me... It was night and day difference. I I hung on these words for three years of my life. She looked over at us and she said, you know, you two have given up a lot to be here. Boom. It was one of the things I held on to. Missionary statesman Hudson Taylor in his own diary once wrote this. Our Heavenly Father is very experienced. He knows very well that His children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect that He will send three million missionaries to China, but if He did, He would have ample means to sustain them all. Depend on it. Listen. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Never. Boom. God will provide. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you've got a place where you're struggling to believe that there's going to be a way because it doesn't look like there's a way. All I can tell you is there will be a way. There was a way for Abraham. There was a way for us in Oxford. There is a way because that's what God specializes in. He will provide. So I offer you, brothers and sisters, the story of Abraham and Isaac. It is the sacrifice of love. It is the sacrifice of logic. It is the sacrifice of a lamb. And he did it for you and me. In Jesus' name, amen.